You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worland. I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. What's up, y'all? Hey, Kyle. <laughs> JT, you always make me say hi first. I wanted to, I know, I'm just... I'm just trying to let you go first. That's it. Yeah. If you ever get the sense that maybe our friendship on the podcast has some awkward moments to it, just know that is actually, that's actually actually just a part of it. Like that's actually a real part of our friendship is that sometimes, sometimes we're all talking over one another and sometimes we're merely in the same space with our heads down on our phone and one of us is talking and the other two are pretending to listen. I was listening. I usually am listening. You are. You're. Kyle, literally, just so if you know, if you're listening to this, Kyle, we were laughing so hard before we started the podcast. Kyle had to spend about 30 seconds composing himself to start the podcast. It's true. I was terrified that I was going to like click record and immediately still be laughing because we're so serious on the podcast. Mm -hmm. That's one of my favorite moments is when Kyle gets in the zone where he's got to like, I got to, I got to lock in and go into uh, you know executive producer mode here and just say, here we go. So on that note, um, let me ask you guys this question because I think this passage is, is one that uh, it can feel like this is a passage that where parts of it can be significantly misunderstood or misapplied. What what do you do when you encounter a passage in scripture that when you teach or you've had to teach them, you feel like there's already widespread confusion? Like, is there one that stands out to you when you like you got up teaching it knowing like the one that I always think about this for me is like, Anytime that I've ever had to get up and teach on the passage uh, on creation or anything regarding creation, I feel like I'm walking Mm -hmm. into a field of landmines and I'm like, this whole room has heard about creation. Yep. They've got a hundred different perspectives or opinions. And there may even be one person in there that is like, has never heard it, but there's like the people who have and have thought about it have very hard opinions or perspectives on this story? What's one for you when you get up to teach or you've taught it in the past, you feel like, or even just the topic that you address? Yeah, my most common one is when I teach on Psalm 139 because I'm, you know, in women's circles, that's the self-esteem Psalm. And so getting to reframe it and say, hey, you thought it meant this, but what if it means this before we start talking about how you feel about it? And I love it. I love doing the work, but it is tricky to address what the potential misunderstanding is without communicating that you thought someone was a dummy. Like I'm right. never feeling that. I'm never like, hey, moron. I'm always like, it, it's more along the lines of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount being like, you have heard that it was said. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, hey, let's circle back mm-hmm. and revisit this and see if that fits with the, the bigger story that's going on here. Yeah. What about you, JT? I don't know that I have a good answer. The first one that came to mind was Philippians chapter two. It's a it's a Christ condescending. And there's a phrase that says he gave up his, he basically gave up his divinity. The Greek term is kenosis. And most people mean, or think that it means Jesus ceased to be divine. Therefore mm-hmm. he could be a servant. And that's the, basically the exact opposite of what Paul was saying. But mm-hmm. but that's not really controversial. Like it just requires an explanation. No, mm-hmm. but it is, a, it is a passage though, where there is confusion just over what it says and maybe yeah. reading it the right way. And the reason I ask that is because today we're going to look at the story of Sodom in Genesis chapter 18. And oftentimes we kind of know one thing and one thing only about Genesis uh, 18 and 19 uh, and the story of Sodom. Uh, And we think we know that one thing and we know this is what was going on in Sodom. This is what happened. And that's why there was judgment. And yet when you pan out and you read this story literally, it doesn't, uh, it it, it takes on, um, it doesn't become reduced more than that, but there's more texture that's added to it to where we realize, you know what, there's actually some really big things happening in this story. Uh, And yes, part of that is addressing a sexual ethic that may challenge us or make us feel countercultural. There's no doubt about that. But the reality is, is that when we look at the story of Sodom in light of the story of Abraham, in which it's Mm -hmm. embedded, and the larger story of Genesis, there is a lot to pull on here. There is a lot um, to think through. Yep, there we go. So, Did you like think of that last night and say, I'm going to say there is a lot... (laughs) No, I d- oh my gosh, I didn't uh, even think that you just okay. you tried to do it nonchalantly. <laughs> I'm just saying, guys, listen, you can't you can't hate me for being a professional at the this. The wordplay you know is just unconscious now. It's so smooth. 
Well, so when we get to Genesis 18, we have a lot to talk about, guys. We do. We do have a ton <laughs> to talk really about a lot here. Um, <laughs> that's going to come back. I have a sense that we're going to be playing up that one. Um, so we've been following along with Abraham. We've covered the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. Last episode, we looked at the story of Hagar and the promise of the child and the the symbol of circumcision. And in Genesis 18, um, when we open it up. We're, we're there with Abraham again, and yet the Lord uh, has approached him. It says in Genesis 18, 1, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them. He bowed himself to the earth and said, Oh, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. And then he begins to show them hospitality. And uh, and it says in verse 6, Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three sayers of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then they're there standing by the tree. They're eating, they're drinking together. And here we get a sense of this conversation's continuing regarding Abraham and Sarah. It says in verse nine, they asked him, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife shall have a son. Now, Jen, I have a question here. Um, yes, if, Kyle? I, if I could pause, um, when we get this, um, when we get this moment here where we're getting a promise, uh, this sounds very similar to uh, the beginning of Genesis 17, yeah. right? When it says that the Lord appeared to him and God spoke to him and really even gives them the, the further kind of promise going into that, uh, that Sarah's going to have a son within the next year. Mm-hmm. Is this one of those times where we're getting that same encounter from a different angle? Like, is this the same situation that we're now just getting from like a, because we heard something very similar in 17 and now it feels like we're getting more, this almost feels like Genesis 1, Genesis 2 to me, where it's like we kind of got some things introduced in Genesis 1, then Genesis 2 gives us a more up close and personal about how the event happened. Is that what we're to see or is this different? No, this is Genesis 17, Abraham hears directly from God, Genesis 19, Genesis 18, um, Sarah hears directly from God. So um, it's not that we don't think that Abraham would have gone and told Sarah what what he hears, but what we're going to learn about Sarah is that Sarah is one of those people who uh, says, did God really say? Right. And right. we've already seen that. We've already seen that. And so uh, here, here is where she gets to hear herself exactly yep. uh, what the promise is. And, and, and what uh, the Lord speaks to her says, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. Sarah, your wife shall have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. And Abraham and Sarah were old. They were advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. I got to tell you, (laughs) this is one of those times in the narrative where I love how the dialogue is written because it's like, uh, narrator Sarah denied it saying I did not laugh for he was afraid and then the narrator said but he said no but you did laugh it's like it feels very like I don't know if you've seen those memes where it's like Sarah says I didn't laugh narrator colon but she did laugh above it where it's like yeah, it turns out you actually are lying Sarah um, but let's pause here because we're about to turn our eyes towards Sodom and I don't want to go right in, into that part of the story because just actually physically they're about to turn to look at Sodom and then the whole story kind of starts going in that direction let's pause here is there uh, Sarah is is laughing because is this just a she feels she's is she just incredulous that biologically this can happen? Well, you know, I think it's more than that. Um, so first of all, you know, we had Abraham who laughed when the Lord right. said this to him. And that was the, it was like a joyful incredulity. It was like, it was not even incredulity. It was just like, this is amazing. It was that kind of laughter. But we right. know enough about Sarah at this point to be able to tell that she's probably not going to laugh from the same place. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you think about the reproach that she carries in, a, in an ancient society where her entire value, it doesn't matter that she's beautiful. Right. Uh, or powerful, if she can't produce a child, 
Uh, and I always like to just frame up for women anytime we're in this section of the text that this is actually not a story <clears throat> that we would apply to, to an individual's um, fertil- infertility issues. Um, this is a story that, which is not to say it has nothing to say to those who are walking through infertility, but that we would not look to Sarah's battle with infertility as some example that we ourselves are to, are to follow because it's a, it's a story that has to do with the bigger theme of fruitfulness and multiplication and the line that leads to Christ. Mm-hmm, and right. so the point here is that the, the birth of the child will be a miraculous occurrence. That's the whole point of the story. And so for women who have been caught up in a lot of pain around the story, I just give you permission as we go through this text to exhale and just let it be about Christ. Um, I hope that's a help. to those who are listening to that. So, but what we're seeing here is Sarah sit in, sat in contrast to Hagar. Um, Hagar's God was a God who saw and heard. If you remember, she said, surely you are a God who sees when he, when he meets her at the well. Um, but here, what do we see? Sarah's God is blind and deaf. Sarah's inside the tent and she um, thinks that because she's inside the tent, she can think or say whatever she wants, mm. uh, but God is not mocked. And so, you know, God, the, the the three men could have said, hey, where's Sarah? Bring her out here. But instead, you know, they play on this idea that she feels that she's concealed and therefore can be honest about what she's really thinking. Yep. And so her concealment would indicate not that she's laughing out of joy, but that this is a bitter laughter of, oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like a laughter of disbelief, right? Like there's just like, there's, there's just no way this is going to happen. And, but the, the, is, is Sarah's main issue here? Because the, the reason she gives for this disbelief are, I I don't want to say this in a wrong way. She gives very concrete reasons Mm -hmm. and the narrator does Mm -hmm. like, the way of the women had ceased to be with Sarah. Right. It's not a like, Sarah just didn't believe enough. Right. It's like the narrator is saying, listen, the the thing that stands in the way here, and I say this to say, because like sometimes I think we over we can over-spiritualize things like this, like around healing or miraculous provision that like if somebody just believes enough, then they will be provided. But neither nor, uh, the, the narrator nor Sarah seem to in, believe here that the primary obstacle to, Sarah conceiving is her belief or disbelief. No, and saying there are some biological realities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not only that, but but it sounds like when the promise was originally given all those years earlier that Sarah was still having a cycle. And now she has, through this period of time, watched her cycle grind to a halt. And so if there were any hope that she might have a, a healthily functioning reproductive cycle, mm-hmm. that is that is gone. She had her her womb is is dead, and to, to you know to speak in like metaphorical terms, which is important for us to understand because like you read in the New Testament the descriptions of Abraham. It says from this one man came descendants, and mm-hmm. him as good as dead. And so he's described twice in the New Testament as being as good as dead, and his wife Sarah also. And so the whole point here is going to be: Can God bring something uh, from death? Can He bring life from death? That's yeah. the story that's that's playing out here. Absolutely, that's good. That's good. So uh, from this point, the, this there's uh, it's not an interruption, but the view changes. Okay, we've had God. Can I, can I just say one thing, Kyle? I'm really disappointed in you. Okay, you didn't talk about verses one through eighteen. Oh my goodness! Uh, the reason I'm bringing it up, Jen. Where is it? I just had it. <laughs> Remember this, Jen. Yeah. <laughs> so in you too, Jen, my going, away, the, yeah. my, my going away gift from TVC was Jen got me a little icon from a Russian painter. It's called, uh, by it's Andrei Rublev. It's an icon of the Trinity of these Oaks of Mamre. I'm just going to note, we need to put it in the show notes. <laughs> oh, hey, by the way, this is another thing too for listeners that one of our assistants asked us to talk about. We now have show notes. Like yes. really good show notes. Yes. And we're also going back through season one and moving forward with good show notes. So we're going to have Katie put... Andre Rublev's Trinity icon <laughs> in the show notes because oh, I don't know Genesis 18 is only one of the most significant passages in all of scripture to talk about the nature of God that Kyle just skipped over but we can keep going because apparently Kyle wants to get to Sodom and Gomorrah go ahead Kyle no, no, no. <laughs> yeah okay. so it's it's the theophany conversation brought back no, I was actually brought up by the biblical text I'll I was oh gosh 
No, I will. No, no. Okay, here's the deal. No, no, no. For real, let's talk about you this. You talk about that a lot, JT. Well, you do. the Bible is talking about it a lot. You do. I, I will. I will. Are say we supposed that. to shout where the Bible shouts and whisper where the Bible whispers, or something like that? Oh my gosh. <laughs> There's nothing better than a pie served with your own words like that. Um, I, I will say Those that are R.C. Sproul's words. There, there is something fascinating here, um, where you have a departure, and I, and I do want to note this, and I, and I don't want us to fall into the pit again. No, we're not. We're not doing it. But I do want to. I do want to make a note here that is that is fascinating. Starting in verse sixteen, when it says, "Then the men the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way." The Lord said, "Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation? All the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised them." Then the Lord said, "Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see." whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And then this next thing is very interesting. I mean, that right there, there's, we're going to come back to that, but I'm making a note. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Now, this is fascinating because I will say you've had these three men um, who have been there, who have been speaking with Abraham, who at least one of them or all three of them are addressed as the Lord or representing the Lord to such a degree that they could be considered to be properly addressed to as the Lord. And yet in this moment, it, it signals that some of the men, so the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. JT, what do you make of that? Do you make of this uh, that one of those people was one of the three. Yes, that have- everybody knows what I'm going to say. Yes, that's what I make of it. <laughs> so, you, you believe that, so no, no, and, and I really mean this, and I'm not going to, yeah. I'm not going to quibble with you here. I just want to hear it because I, because you do have me thinking through this. Is yep. this a one of these is a theophany or a Christophany? The other two are angelic, like angelic representations. Those two go towards Samada, mm-hmm. Samada, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, <laughs> where. <laughs> Not Samada. <laughs> wow. Uh, just, I'm going to keep doing that over this season. Um, but uh, those two are the two angels that we see go into Sodom who have the uh, unholy uh, yep. interaction there, right? That are accosted yeah. that, and confronted. That's the way I would take this. There's two primary history of interpretation ways to take this. The first is that this is the Trinity somehow appearing. I have, I think that's slightly problematic. I mean, that's where Rublev actually writes, the perspective he writes his, or uh, paints his icon from. I take that, that this is actually a theophany or a Christophany with two messengers or two angels with them, but all appearing in some human form. That's so good. wait, can we just back up really quickly to that oh. end of that Sarah part before we get to the next part? Because I think it helps yeah, us understand absolutely. it a little bit. Sarah is laughing in the tent and then she lies, right? She lies to God. She right. says, no, I was not laughing. And and God says, no, but you did laugh. And mm-hmm. I think we should be surprised at what doesn't happen there. Yep. Because uh, think about what happens to Achan when he lies mm-hmm. about having treasure in his tent. Think about the story of, um, uh, not Priscilla and Aquila, what am I trying to say? In the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira. The, the, the anti-Priscilla and <laughs> That's right. <laughs> exactly. Um, but they lie and and mm-hmm. and they had they they have an immediate consequence that is um, irreversible, so to speak. Uh, and so we have to ask the question then, why doesn't God strike down Sarah? Because she deserved it for the way that she related to him. Now, obviously we understand her role in the story is much bigger. Um, and and she is under the blessing. She is one of these, I will bless those who bless you. That's where she falls under. So God perseveres with her, even in the midst of this blatant disobedience. And that's important for us in the way that we're going to understand the story of Lot, because right. as Kyle has hinted at already, we think of this story as though we know the list of the good guys and the bad guys. And right. it's going to be important for us to, to pay attention to how everyone is treated. So with that in mind, Kyle, proceed. So we're getting a signal here that there is a problem in Sodom Mm -hmm. and that a part of the reason why these 
uh, this theophany or these angelic forces have have shown up is because there has been an outcry. And this is fascinating in verse 20, because the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, this is fascinating because there is a, a sense here in which the Lord, this is like almost like uh, God's descent at Babel, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like that essentially Babel has been something that's happening, but it's kind of, but it, and it's happening here on earth and God is descending in order to kind of calculate, okay, is this what is what I've heard? Um, some suggest that this here is representative of the angelic messengers bringing back report to God, that essentially the outcry is as not just a metaphorical, this is not just a figure of speech, but essentially that the angelic host that is kind of... Uh, moving around earth is reporting back to God, essentially notifying him of the gravity of Babel's wickedness or Sodom's wickedness. Have you ever heard this? Well, um, sort of. Here's, here's, here's what I've heard on this. And it has to do with why we see this visitation happen with three figures instead of just with one. Um, because if you look at the way that the law is going to be given later on uh, in Exodus and then in the <clears throat> rest of the Pentateuch, a person's guilt is established on the basis of two or three witnesses. And so I really think that more the force of what's happening here is that two or three divine witnesses are coming down not to learn anything, but so that there can never be, it can never be said that God ruled unjustly without having firsthand, you know, without this, this expression of a firsthand witness. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that's got to be a part of it here. I agree with that 100%. Um, And uh, he says, and if not, I will know. And so it says, the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. And now we're getting, I'm not going to read all of this here um, because it's a a pretty, uh, there's there's a lot of text to cover. Um, But I do want to mention it because I think it's important. Abraham begins to talk with God and he begins to talk with them really in kind of an intercessory prayer manner, meaning that Abraham is petitioning God Mm -hmm. on behalf of Sodom and on behalf of Lot, who lives there, who's his kin. And Abraham says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And so Abraham then begins to kind of go, okay, 50, well, what about, you know, 45, 45, what about 40? 40. What about 35? Like he begins to kind of just talk with God. And, and I, I think one thing that's worth asking here, um, and for us to kind of work through this is, is Abraham changing God's mind here in this passage? Because like, if you just gave it a real kind of quick surface level reading, it could kind of feel that way. Couldn't it? Like God has a plan. He's come to that plan. Uh, he's, he's come to Abraham with that plan. He's told him what he's going to do. And now Abraham is changing God's plan. Kyle and I have had this conversation a few times off offline, just about the immutability and impassibility of God. So Kyle, I think this would be, I'd love for you to answer that. My take is that uh, Abraham, um, uh, my, my take is this. We do not know the intersection of God's uh, plans and our prayer, but that God has chosen to involve us as participants and the accomplishment of his purposes through prayer. And that's part of what we're seeing here with Abraham is that I think we can genuinely and honestly say God invites us to uh, uh, into participation in the accomplishment of his plans around the world through the prayers of his people. Uh, There's a mystery regarding prayer and how it relates to the revealed and hidden purposes of God. We didn't get, when God told Abraham, as much as he's told him so far, is that like there is unrighteousness in Sodom and it will be judged. And at at no point is God deterred from that righteous judgment. That should be noted. Uh, And Abraham isn't trying to deter God from the righteous judgment against wickedness. That should also be noted. He's not trying to say, God, don't judge the wicked. And God is saying, okay, Abraham, because you asked me to, I'm not going to judge the wicked. Abraham is merely asking a question. And I think it emerges from a fairly honest place, which is, well, what if there are righteous in that city? 
right? You've gone down there because of the great outcry of evil against uh, the great outcry of evil that you have heard to judge the evil and the wickedness, but will you judge the wicked with the just? So I don't think Abraham is intending to stop God's judgment. I don't think he's trying to uh, grapple with God to stop the judgment. I think he's merely asking, okay, but what if there are righteous among the wicked there? And for that sake, God was never going to judge the righteous with the wicked. He was not going to do that. And Abraham is not asking him to do that. Uh, but Abraham is appealing to God in a way that I think we can say, and the kindness and condescension of God, he has chosen to accomplish his purposes in the world through the prayers of his people. Not always, but often. So he's not changing God's mind. So I agree with everything that you said about prayer. And I think that's a valuable teaching. I disagree that this passage is is addressing that um, because if you if you look at the entire sweep of the story, this has way more to do with Abraham's understanding of who is righteous than it does with will God or will not God destroy the city um, because he whittles him down to ten right in this whole back and forth, but God already knows exactly how many righteous people there are in Sodom. You and I might read what happens next and think that the righteous who are removed from Sodom are Lot and his wife. But then we find out by the time we get to the end of the cycle of Lot's story, certainly his wife was not righteous. She looks over her shoulder with longing to go back. And certainly Lot was not righteous because of what's going to happen with his daughters. Mm -hmm. And so the real answer to the question of will God indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked is no, he would never do that but none is righteous, no, not one. What God does is he actually spares some of the unrighteous according to his graciousness and according to his plans. And I think that's what the lesson of the story is. But I do think that what you described is worth exploring. I think it's better explored in the story where Moses intercedes on behalf of Israel um, later on in Exodus. But that's just me. Well, it's not just me, but that's how I would say it. No, no, no. I, I agree. I agree that uh, the, the Moses passage is a clear instance of that with God's presence going with them into the land. What I would say here is, though, I, I'm, not, I'm not as maybe convinced as you are that Abraham is misunderstanding who is righteous and who is not righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah. And partly because I feel like the overall theme here with Abraham is we get a picture here that who are those who are righteous? Well, they are the ones who are advocated or represented or mediated on behalf of God's chosen righteous one. So a lot is rescued. Lot and his family are rescued. Yes, because of the graciousness of God. And yet God could have shown grace to any number of the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm -hmm. And he chose to show grace to Lot and his people because those were the people for whom Abraham was like that. They are under his covering. They're under his headship in the same way that we as the church are under the kind of headship or intercession or advocacy of Christ. And so like in my mind, I'm with you. I understand what you're saying, which is that Sodom and Gomorrah and because Lot and his daughters are not going to be like some sort of paragon Mm -hmm. of righteous living, but nor has Abraham been Mm -hmm. and nor are there people in Sodom. So I feel like I get what you're saying, but could it be that like the reason that grace is shown to Lot and his family is because of their belonging to Abraham and the blessings of the covenant that kind of go to them by extension? Yeah, Abraham would be um, the the type of Christ in the story. And so mm-hmm. it's the, the the righteous for the unrighteous. He believes and is credited to him as righteousness. Mm-hmm. And then um, Lot is spared, not because of Lot's righteousness, but because of Abraham's. So yeah. you don't want to carry that too. Obviously, sure. don't stretch that beyond where it needs to go. But I think that's the way that the types are lining up for us in the story. Um, but Lot is not portrayed for us at any point in this story as 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 being a, a God-fearer, frankly. No, I mean, there's yeah. that passage in, is it Jude, where he shows up in the New Testament that describes him as a righteous man? And I'm like, can we what? edit that out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. And, and so I think I, I want to make sure that I'm not, uh, am, am I reaching here though with Abraham? Like, because Old Testament conceptions of righteousness, I, I want to be careful that like the Old Testament is, is regularly commending that it is possible to be righteous, like the wisdom literature in particular. And God has actually called Abraham to walk righteously before him. Right. So purportedly, Abraham and others can walk in righteousness. They can walk in God's righteous ways. And the laws, and certainly within the context of where this is going to fall, 
Israel is commanded to walk in righteousness. And so is it, I understand that nobody in Sodom is righteous as we can only be righteous in Christ. But it does seem that they they could be more righteous than they are. They could behave differently in the eyes of God. There's a reason why the outcries come up from Sodom and not from another place like Egypt or 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 another place that Abraham is sojourned through. And so it seems like here the reason that Lot and his family are rescued is not necessarily because they have a distinct righteousness on their own uh, and not just too because of like an arbitrary grace, but because in some way they belong to God's covenant people that's different than the rest of Sodom. But, it, but, am, I, but am I stretching that though? No, I, I, think that's, I think we're saying the same thing. Okay, okay. okay. I think we're saying, I'm saying that, I'm saying Lot is not saved because of Lot. Lot is saved because of Abraham. Yeah. In the same sense that Jen is not saved because of Jen, Jen is saved because of Christ. Yes. And yes. so I think that's how the type sets itself up, which is not to say Abraham is sinless or he atones no, for, for sure. the sins of Lot or anything right. like that. But I think that's the way that it's, the typology is being set up. What do you think, JT? You've been over there flipping I, around. I, I, well, I'm, I'm just going to different passages as I'm thinking about things you're saying that are referencing other places of scripture. Because Jen, I've never heard it said quite that way before. So I need to give it some more thought. But certainly that's an interesting perspective. I'd always kind of read it the way Kyle read it. But there's a sense in which it's like you think of Hebrews chapter 13, where faith and righteousness is being commended. And that's where we're mm-hmm. told, show each other brotherly love, because sometimes you're, you're going to entertain angels unawares. And mm-hmm. that's what we see a lot doing here. When Jesus is teaching on flee the coming tribulation, he teaches specifically about flee the coming judgment. Like you think of what, I mean, Luke 17, uh, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop who who his goods are in the house, don't come down to take your goods away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. So it seems that Jesus in some sense is commending the righteousness of Lot for fleeing the coming judgment and tribulation that was coming to Sodom, no? Lot does not flee. Lot has to be dragged out. But he, but he is, uh, okay, so he flees, but it's also a gracious fleeing where, because Lot is not mentioned. Lot's wife is. Well, Yes, because once they've been bodily removed from the city, she is still looking back over her shoulder. I think that a, a, a closer comparison to the way that Lot is rescued would be uh, the story of the Good Samaritan, um, where the guy in the ditch is unconscious sure. because if he were awake, he would fight against his savior. Uh, and I think that's the same kind of idea that we see here with Lot and his wife. They are, they are for all intents and purposes, dragged kicking and screaming from 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 the from the city. I don't know. That's that's how I read it. I mean, here's the thing that'll preach. So I'll go with it. <laughs> that will preach. <laughs> and the other, well, I think the other thing you have to keep in account here is what we've already seen of Lot is that you know he pitches his tent towards Sodom. There's this progression of him moving closer and closer away. From, he's moving away from the land of promise and closer and closer to Sodom. He's been flirting with it, and then at the beginning of the story, we find that he's at the gate, which means he's not just living in Sodom. He's, he's a respected citizen in Sodom. The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. 
As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. So Abraham continues to talk with God, and it says at the end uh, in verse 33 of chapter 18, and the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now we turn to the entrance of Sodom. uh, Chapter 19, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, bowed himself with his face to the earth, and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night, wash your feet, then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend uh, the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast, and he baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Okay, so Jen, go back to what you were saying with Lot sitting at the gate, because Mm -hmm. I find that a lot, this is one of those kind of little ancient Near Eastern yeah. customs that does not, that we read right past this. And we're like, oh yeah, just coincidence, a little coincidence. Mm-hmm. A lot yeah. happened to be at the gate. That yeah, was convenient. He was just waiting there. Uh, it means he's one of, he's probably one of the city elders. Uh, and so if, if you track his geographical location through the text as he's introduced, he's, he keeps being introduced to us and then we press pause in a story, he's introduced again, we press pause and so on and so forth. He has been making a progression toward um towards Sodom and now he's he's all in. So so now Lot is here and he and he, and he petitions them like hey don't go like don't sleep in the the town square. They uh, kind of mess with them. That's what they do. They're like, "No, right. oh, we'll be fine out here." And he's like, "You will not be fine." So he yeah. demonstrates a complete awareness of just how mm-hmm. bad things are. Yeah. Now, and this is an important uh point to uh kind of pause here and um and to note, this kind, this may seem strange to us that like Lot would run upon a couple of strangers and invite them into his house. And while I do think it's important that uh, what Jinja said, Lot is aware of, of maybe what would happen in the middle of this town at night to two strangers. It's also important to note that in the ancient Near East, this kind of hospitality to strangers mm-hmm. was expected. Uh, and there was a reciprocity that was expected in ancient Near Eastern civilization. And so what Lot's doing is probably twofold. One, he is demonstrating some hospitality to strangers, as he should. But also, that hospitality, the underside of it, is probably indicative of the fact that Lot was well aware that these two guys were not your typical visitors to Sodom, and that what happened at night in the town square to them as strangers and as outsiders would not be good. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so those two things are working at the same time. Um, And it says, before they lay down, the minute, so we're we're at Lot's house now, uh, and it's nighttime. The men of the city, the men of Sodom, uh, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. Now, this is very like inclusive, categorical language. I mean, the writer is almost at pains to point out everybody, all the men are there. Everybody, all the people to the last man surround the house. They called the lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now let's pause. Um, The way that Lot responds here is an indication that when they say we would like to know these, these people, that it's not like a get to know you, meet and greet, sip and see, kind of conversation they want to have because Lot comes out and essentially says, I have two daughters who have not known any man. What is Lot doing here? I mean, JT, like just put the cards on the table for us. He's prostituting his two virgin daughters. Yeah, that's exactly. It's just horrific. Because what do the men want? They want, they want to have sex. Yeah. Yeah. Because the language is really clean here. And the reason I need to, we need to drive it there is because you could read this and go, well, what's, I mean, obviously this goes bad. And the more you read it, the closer you can see like, okay. But the language here is very 
it's very clean for what's really transpiring in this conversation. Mm-hmm. These are people, who, these are men who have surra- in Sodom who have surrounded Lot's house, who are begging that these two angelic visitors who Lot is hosting now will be really released up to them in order for them to engage in sexual activity with them. And you'll notice that every man to the last man language, I would argue, supports the idea that these are two witnesses establishing the guilt of every single member of Sodom. Mm-hmm. That it's like that the that the narrator is pointing that out. Yeah, okay. that yeah. makes sense. I, I don't know that I thought about it like that, but I can see that. Essentially, just saying like uh, for the for the later audience that would read it, hey, we were there. Yeah. Every, like this was not just a few people; this was everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, uh, and they called a lot, you know, where are you? Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out that we may know them. Lot, you know, he begs them. He's so, so he's, he's like trying to protect them, these angels from the men of Sodom. Mm-hmm. And so in a kind of last ditch, Hell Mary attempt to do that. Well, is it really last ditch Hell Mary? It's really his first Thing, right? I mean, it seems like he comes to the front door and is like, let me give you my daughters instead. Well, think about how weird it is that Lot has raised two virgin daughters in the city of Sodom. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's weird. That means those girls have basically never left the house. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's the double-minded man. You know, he's, mm-hmm. he, or he places a, he places a priority on chastity insofar as it supports the end result of being able to have marriageable daughters at such mm-hmm. time as he needs that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really not a pretty picture no. at all. And know. for, for women who are listening to this, often I know if you're just hitting this story in a Bible reading plan, this is where you really want the narrator to jump in and say, and such a thing is not to be done ever. And, and the narrator doesn't say anything. And I want to reassure you that that's because it is so obvious that what's going on here is is an absolute affront um, to God and to those made in his image who are being offered up in this way. Yeah. yeah. And, w- and while the narrator doesn't say anything, the angels do. They step mm-hmm. in and they say, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he is, uh, oh no, I'm sorry. These are the men speaking. The angels are about to speak or about to to act. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they said, these are the men of Sodom, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. There's other say, Lot's an outsider to Sodom. And now he's sitting here telling us what we can and can't have. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. So again, this is a very very visceral account that's happening. I mean, this is a this is a kind of almost action movie like scene here, mm-hmm. where like they reach out, they grab Lot, they pull him into the house, and they like strike blindness on all of these men that have gathered. And you still get the picture that even blind, uh, they, they persist. It says, it says they wore themselves out groping for the door, like they're trying to. This is this is a mob. It's a mob kind of picture, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, now, I want to pause here. And I think we have to do, we have to talk about this, even though um, it's not, this is not necessarily what we do on this show all the time. Um, in recent days, there's been a criticism of traditional interpretations of this passage. And the criticism has been twofold. The criticism has been that the judgment of Sodom is not primarily about the sexual activity that these men want to engage in, but is about a failure in the ancient Near East on hospitality. And this has been a criticism that's been offered primarily by those who would want to say, this passage isn't really dealing with sexual immorality. It's really dealing with Sodom as an injustice against uh, hospitality. Have you heard this before? Yes. I, have, I haven't. I mean, I've heard it in, I've heard a little bit of it, but expand on what, what's the hospitality breach? The hospitality breach is that like Lot is being the husp, he is doing the like what the righteous thing to do is, which are these are two strangers and he's bringing them into their home. And that these people here are saying Lot is hogging the opportunity to bless these people, mm. bring them out into the city so that we can like uh, this. Th- these are strangers. Like essentially the idea is that strangers and sojourners would not have been a really common occurrence in the ancient East, particularly if they had some sort of defining features to them. 
And so that what Lot is doing here is Lot is essentially pulling away from the rest of the city the opportunity to receive the reciprocity blessing for hosting two strangers who might be of means of wealth or who might have some way of blessing the other residents in Sodom. So the idea is that Lot is an outsider and he is hoarding for himself the blessing of hosting strangers who probably, as would have been true in ancient Near Eastern cultural customs, would have extended some kind of blessing to Lot and his family for hosting them. This is primarily a criticism that's been put forward to, again, deflect from the sexual dimension that's present in the sin here. Because if it's about inhospitality or lots uh, lots uh, selfishness over extending the blessing of hospitality, then it can kind of move the focus away from a sexual issue that we, we'd not rather talk about and talk about God's judgment on. Yeah, well, I, I haven't spent a lot of time listening to the you know, to that argument, obviously, since I'm asking you to familiarize it with me right now, but I d I'm not sure how that could be, that argument could be made just in light of the context of the story where it says that God right. has come down to judge the inhabitants exactly. of the of the town. I think the reason those kinds of arguments get leveled against the interpretation that has dominated the landscape for so long um, is because that interpretation was that lot, that Sodom was destroyed because of the sin of homosexuality. Right. And, um, what we're reading here is that that is not an accurate translate. That is not an accurate uh, way to look at this either, mm -hmm. uh, because the sin of Sodom was not limited to the sin of homosexuality. The sin of Sodom was an, uh, as was wickedness wholesale that included, but was not limited to homosexuality. It also included heterosexual forms of sexuality that were being practiced in in horrible ways, as, as we just saw here. So um, I understand why that argument is leveled. I think it's leveled because at times the church, at times, more often than not, the church has elevated um, homosexual sex to a special category of sinfulness. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this because I might push it one step further. I also think the reason arguments like that can be leveled against the biblical text is because we want the text to reflect us uh, and we want to we want to read the text, not let the text read us. Yeah. So, uh, or to say it another way, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say if you try hard enough. And those criticisms and there's kind of a whole school of thought behind that, that. This isn't the only text that they would point to. There's others mm -hmm. uh, in kind of the higher critical world tend to be driven by their desires, not just what they, not just what the text says. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'll tell you, um, uh, if you go on social media and like the de deconstruction and exactly. evangelical movement, you will hear, you'll, you'll see these little 60 second videos of people saying, Hey, what, you know, the sin of Sodom wasn't, uh, sexual licentiousness. It wasn't sexual immorality. It was uh, hospitality. And they'll give you all these little citations and quotes. But the reality is what Jen just said is, is exactly the way to think through this in terms of Jen and JT. But starting with what Jen said about there has been an outcry. God has come down to see this. It's not the judgment isn't because these two people showed up and then Sodom didn't behave the right way in terms of, or Lot behave wrongly uh, when it comes to hospitality. There has been an outcry of wickedness going out. And it seems like I think uh, Genesis 19 is trying to show us, hey, a huge part of that. And, and like Jen said, it's broader than the issue of homosexuality, but it includes all sorts of sexual immorality. And this is, this is actually a really good example of how if you're out there on the YouTubes or the interwebs and you're, you know, hearing someone's hot take and you're thinking, I've never heard that before. Um, if it's a hot take like that, that's ripped out of context, it's relying on you not knowing the context. Mm -hmm. And based on the number of likes and shares those things get, we're pretty reliable. And that's why it's so important to JT and Kyle and me for our listeners to know um, that people just know what, what the Bible says, like, pass the pop quiz on it, be able to know, you know, because, because you can guard yourself against that, um, that rush of adrenaline. Um, oh my goodness, someone's been holding something back on me and never told me this before, just simply by knowing what comes before in the story, what comes after in the story, what yeah. the whole story arc is. 
Absolutely. So it says the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? These are the angels speaking to Lot. Sons, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed uh, to his sons-in-law to be jesting. But as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So they seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and they set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. You have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, the city is near enough to flee to and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, behold, I grant you this favor also that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. For Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. So we get this, like, like Lot basically, him and his family has to basically be dragged out of the city, right? I mean, like, they're la- it's like he says he lingers there. Like his sons-in-law think he's jesting. And even Lot, on the next morning, is kind of like, just do-do-do-do-do. You're just like going about like, yeah. like you, you guys want some breakfast? I got some biscuits here. You know, like he just seems to be very laid back about this whole thing. Well, and the fact that his sons-in-law thought he was jesting makes you wonder, like, what was his delivery when, when he went over in there and said, you know, was it like, uh, hey, guys, these guys are telling me we ought to, you know, I mean, like, I don't know, but, but it, and, and then not only that, but once they've been gra- dragged kicking and screaming and set outside the city limits and he's told flee to the hills, he's like, oh, I'd really, I'm really more of a city guy, hmm. you know, can I, I mean, it's like, dude, do what these guys are saying. I mean, he, he, he still is grasping for what feels comfortable, uh, even as he's being dragged out of the place that has been his great comfort and also would be his great demise. Absolutely. The, the central <sighs> theme of all of that, though, is is yes. Here you have this punk who's lingering, jesting, not, and you're, you're going to see he he's he is making this virtually impossible for these messengers to save his life. But obviously, the key here is found in verse 16: the Lord being merciful to him. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's just one thing that is is uh, maybe to our our modern. Uh, sensibilities. We we don't understand why. And that really is an opportunity for us to pause and see how radically generous and gracious God's mercy actually is. It mm-hmm. actually does and can come to those who are entirely undeserving of it. That, that Lot makes basically no attempt to be one who should be shown mercy. He mm-hmm. is one who should not be shown mercy, but yet he's a recipient of God's mercy. Even as we get, I know we're not there yet, Kyle, but you get to the end uh, of the passage in, in verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. And it's mm-hmm. because God remembering his covenantal Abraham, yeah. promises to Abraham, which spares Lot again, not because of anything he has done, but because he is a recipient of God's unbelievably radical mercy. Yeah. I think it's good for us to remember in the midst of a story like this, that our temptation will be, and you even have heard in my own voice, just that, can you believe this guy tone? And it's important for us to remember that when we're looking how we ourselves fit into this story, the character who most incites our outrage is the one with whom we should most likely identify. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, to see ourselves as having a parallel to Lot is, is what we should be thinking. We should be thinking, how am I like Lot and his wife when I've been pulled from the wreckage of what I had made my life into apart from Christ? How am mm-hmm. I still looking longingly over my shoulder? Lot's wife does what Israel will do. They keep looking back toward Egypt saying it was better there. She's a type of, of, of what Egypt, of what Israel will continue to do in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're like that. We have those moments where we think it was better in Egypt, even though it's against all reason that we would think that. So um, as we express our outrage toward Lot's bullheadedness, I think it's always a good reminder to, to go, the person I'm maddest at in the story is the one who I should associate myself with and ask, how, how does this point to me? Yeah, that's a really good insight. And, Jesus, and, Jesus and, uses oh. that insight to, just for like a discipleship point is, you know, when he, he talks about in Matthew chapter 16 or here in Luke chapter 17, 
he, he literally says, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Is that is that Lot's wife sought to keep her life and also experience God's mercy at the same time. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is telling us that's not an option. You cannot right. keep your life. You can't look over your shoulder to what you used mm-hmm. to have and how either your sinfulness or your way of being uh, brought pleasure and fulfillment to you. You have to mm-hmm. totally forsake it. And this is Paul in Galatians 2.20, right? I, it is no longer I who live. I, I do not look back at at Paul uh, or Saul, uh, although he's still Saul, but I'm not looking back at this former way of life. I am now pressing forward, striving forward for what lies ahead in this life that I have in Christ. Now, we've mentioned her a couple of times here, so let's get to her. The sun going on, it says, The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley uh, and what grew on the ground, all the inhabitants of the cities. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, um, you've already, you've, you, you've already kicked. You've already given away the lead here, Jen, but this is a picture of Israel, right? Mm-hmm. The original audience, they're looking back mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and they're often kind of pining for something that was clearly evil, wicked, and wrong. Mm-hmm. But what is there a significant, like, let me just ask a basic, is there a significance to salt here? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you get into the later books uh, in the Pentateuch and you find that salt is added to anything, any any sacrifice um, that is meant to be a memorial to the everlasting covenant of God. When we think of salt, we think of it as something that makes our food taste better, but an ancient audience understood it as a preservative. And you heard in the vo- in the verse that JT read um, from the New Testament, um, don't seek to preserve um, this 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 memory of past sin. And so God essentially turns Lot's wife into a preservative. Like it's a, it's a parable, a frozen parable there on the plane um, because she wanted to keep it inside of her heart. And, and, and what God knows is that if she harbors that seed inside of her heart, she will carry it to the next place that she goes and it will grow. And um, so there you go. And so you'll either be, you know, as Jesus says, you'll either be uh, the salt of the earth. You will be that which preserves righteousness or you will preserve unrighteousness. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, the next instant, like just to kind of land here on this story, I know we've been going a while here, but it's just a gosh, it's been, it's, it's, there's so much to cover. Uh, it says that Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters. Now, hold on. He, he, he leaves Zoar for the hills that he had told the angels. Right. I don't want to go to those hills. <laughs> Do you catch that? Yeah. He tells the angels, please don't make me escape to the hills. Let me go to this other little town. And then it says, okay, now Lot went up. Out of Zohar, Meanwhile, he's living with his daughters that he just tried to prostitute out. Yeah, like, right. guys. yeah. Hey, hey buddy. <laughs> hey. Yeah. In in the in the hills. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Why do you think he's afraid to live in Zoar? Well, uh, probably looked around and went, "Hmm, bad stuff going on here too." I mean, yes, I think that that's probably the good, the best way to understand it. Uh, and uh, it says that he's living up there, lived in a cave with his two daughters. The firstborn said to the younger, our father is old. There's not a man on the earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So the, they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Um, this is, this feels like a shot for shot remake of the story after the flood, doesn't it? Like, except with Noah and his sons, it's Lot and his daughters. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's this, look, look, our father is over there basically naked and ashamed. Like, like, let's get him drunk with wine and get him naked and ashamed, essentially, is, is what happened. So you have like God's rescue of a family through judgment mm-hmm. with the intention that they will go on to live righteously uh, outside of that. And yet what do they end up doing? They end up naked and ashamed, walking in unrighteousness. This just feels, it feels very on the nose. It just feels very mirroring of that account. I think I would press on a little of what's going on here from the standpoint of these are two virgin daughters raised in Sodom. And so what is their view of proper sexuality? They either don't have one at all, but I actually we're going to see that they have some sense of the importance of sexuality because they believe that there's no way for them to have offspring. 
And we just have seen all through this story that Sarah, no matter how much power or beauty she has, perceives herself to be hopelessly broken if she cannot produce a child. Mm-hmm. So I think we're seeing here a, a, a reaffirmation of that that sense of if I can't produce a child, then what is my purpose? My whole purpose is to produce children. Um, so there's that playing into the story. I'm not uh, obviously not saying that what happens here is is right. It's not the right answer, but I think um, you can see how if you had grown up in the environment these girls had grown up in, um, this would, might be a place that they would go to as they're looking around. And I've even heard some of the commentators say that. Um, with the likelihood that they've had very little exposure to any outside contact, just based on the fact that they were virgins in Sodom, uh, that, that they would have viewed what had happened to Sodom and Gomorrah as basically the end of the end of the world. And they're wondering how do we even propagate the human race? So I don't know if that's accurate or not, but that's one of the takes I've heard on it. Uh, I feel actually a lot of compassion for them in this story. Uh, and uh, which is not to say that not to justify how the story plays out. And I think the more important piece is what we find there at the end uh, mm-hmm. where it describes the names of the children because we find that this, this, this um, dangerous living that Lot has done is now bearing the poisonous fruit of offspring who are an unholy offspring who then become the future enemies of the children of God. Yeah, but but not just the future enemies of the children of God, but because what men have meant for evil, God has purpose for good, right? Mm -hmm. We we, we talked about that because the Moabites and the Ammonites do become some of the most contentious neighbors Mm -hmm. for Israel. And there's no doubt about that. But there's also a young woman who comes from the Moabites Mm -hmm. is going to end up being the redemption story, like where this is a bad, the the Moabites begin in a bad, bad way. But through the story of Ruth, this Moabitess widow, we get a redemption, not just of Ruth's life, but of this line in particular. Mm -hmm. And through that redemption, we get the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And it's an... It's an incredible thing when you think about like, this is a bit like the way Genesis 19 ends Mm -hmm. is really grimy, ugly, brutal, violent, Mm -hmm. gross... And yet through that, uh, God ends up accomplishing a story of redemption, both for Ruth as a Moabite and Moabites, but for Jesus, the Christ, the Lord. Yeah, Yeah, I think you could probably make the argument that Ruth's story is the undoing of the story of these two girls. Mm. (sighs) That's a lot there. It's a lot, man. It's a good thing we didn't try to bite off more than we could chew in one episode, huh? <laughs> or in or, or in one season, man. Um, right? Uh, uh, yeah. Gosh, Ruth is the undoing of the story of these two girls. Wow. Listen, if you've been listening along with us, thank you. Uh, if you've made it to the end of a almost hour long episode, <laughs> I'm saying I'm saying now, and you might hear this later. This episode might be divided into two parts that we'll release in two parts. Yeah. And if you're hearing me say this right now, and we did that, then maybe you were frustrated that we did that. But if you're hearing me say this right now and we didn't do that, then we chose not to do it and use after a 60-minute episode. So, uh, so Engineer Brad, don't cut any of this. This is just how we'll land the plane. Um, but if you've been following along with us, thank you. We really do hope you enjoyed the discussion. You can join the conversation by finding us on social media at Knowing Faith Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, patreon.com slash Knowing Faith Podcast as well if you want some more behind-the-scenes kind of stuff. And in our next episode, we will continue to explore... The the story of Genesis as it unfolds. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. Grace and peace.